uh, in worship as we open up the Word of God together. Uh, We're in the book of Genesis. We've got two more sermons. Today we are covering chapter 48 and 49. Next week we're in chapter 50. Uh, We have been in Genesis for quite some time, and I hope that it has been a great blessing to you. It has been a great blessing to me uh, to see all that is in this book of the Bible. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, there is a blue Bible in the chair in front of you. And the first, uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And so you can find it by simply opening up to that first book. Anybody in the room a fan of figure skating? Figure skating. That's it? Okay. Thought I was going to connect with people this morning. I guess not. (laughs) I personally find figure skating to be a remarkable, beautiful sport. It requires grace, strength, agility, stamina, courage. You ever fallen on the ice? (laughs) An intense commitment to train. Uh, One of the difficult techniques in figure skating is to jump in the air and to complete as many rotations as you possibly can. Uh, Did a little bit of research and saw that the leading woman in the world for spin rotations was three and a half spins. Uh, The leading man was four spins in the air and then landing. They do think that the five spin is a barrier of some sorts, which I just kind of thought was interesting. But what I think is even more remarkable than all of that is the fact that they can actually jump in the air and spin that many times and not come back down again, either dizzy or sick. I mean, I don't know about you, but I spin my head too quickly and I'm kind of bobbling around the room like what just happened to me. You know, I was asking Katie about this. She was a twirler. Uh, when she was in high school, and I said, how do you do all of those spins and complete those without being dizzy? And she said, you know, there's this technique called spotting. I understand that this technique is used in many sports, uh, one being ballet as a dancer pirouettes. Uh, They keep their body moving at a fairly constant speed, but then they try to fix their attention or they're focused on one point for as long as they can. And as they're in that turn, then they rapidly twist their head and refocus on the same spot again. For whatever reason, that helps the body's inner ear to remain focused, uh, to be stable. Now, as we open up our Bibles this morning to Genesis 48 and 49, uh, we are in the final moments of a man's life who took up most the most pages in the book of Genesis, Jacob. And as he utters his final words, you can see that he employs this technique of spotting. Life for Jacob has been disorienting. It's had its ups and downs. Uh, I mean, it's been a roller coaster in many ways as you follow him and the choices that he's made and the way they've blown up in his face. In fact, uh, he would even say this himself. We saw this last week in Genesis 47, verse 9. He said, Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. So you can imagine uh, living a life like that A lot of problems, a lot of conflicts, but it would be disorienting. Maybe you feel that way. 
You, you think through all the events that have occurred in your life and you say, I feel somewhat dizzy right now. I'm spinning. I don't have a sense of center. Well, Jacob learned to spot along the way the spiritual reality of God. This reality sustained him. It prevented him from this dizzying effect. It gave him great confidence as he breathed his last breath. And what was that central reality? Well, I would submit to you from start to finish in the book of Genesis, it is God's grace. God's grace. What is grace? It's God's sovereign choice to hold us together, to sustain us to bless us, to forgive us, to work out good plans for our life. And none of this, if, if you're to really understand what grace is, none of this has anything to do with something that we do to earn God's favor. No, grace is something that is given to you entirely on the other person's, due to the other person's generous nature, their goodness. In fact, as you look at the Bible in the book of Genesis, we come to realize that we deserve judgment, and yet God, over and over again, is working out his grace so that it can come to all mankind. It was an unflinching faith in God's grace that gave Jacob great confidence in this moment as he's facing death, to have hope for his future, for the future of his family, and to know that God was working out Marvelous plans. So as we make our way through Genesis 48 and 49, we're going to spot grace in three distinct and soul-enriching ways. And we begin by looking at this first principle. God's grace is available to everyone. We see that in chapter 48. The story picks up with Joseph and Jacob having this intimate encounter, their final moments together together. Verse 1, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took him with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Now it is instructive to think about death and the deathbed. Not, not to be morbid, but so that we would live in the present, the way that we would want to live, the way that we would want to live so that we can look back at our life and say, the things that I did along the way mattered, were purposeful. It's been said, and I think you've heard this before, that no one in their deathbed wishes that they worked more hours in overtime, right? In fact, it's in that deathbed moment that the things that will really matter will be the people that we've surrounded ourselves with in life, we'll think of those close friends, those family members, and our brothers and sisters in Christ. So as Jacob begins his transition to eternity, he knows that he must set his family to spot grace, to see it, to know the God that has been with him through his whole life. And, and in his transition, he wants to pass the torch onto them and say, you need to see this same God as well. He begins by extending his blessing to Joseph. Joseph gets the right of the firstborn son. Look at verses 3 and 4 as 
Jacob reminds Joseph of the promises of God, the goodness of God. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring an everlasting possession. Now, as he extends this blessing to Joseph, Joseph gets the firstborn right, which is the double portion. And the way that this would work in this moment is that Jacob would actually adopt Joseph's two oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they would take the place of his actual two oldest sons, Reuben and Simeon. We'll see later on why they replaced those other two. So we can continue with this adoption ceremony. Verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way where there was still distance to go to Ephraim. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. It's interesting that when people are in their final moments, how the mind can reminisce on the totality of life, the good and the bad. Donald Barnhouse writes this, his mind was like an autumn when sun and shadows alternate across the valley. He had, been on, he had been out in the sun, and then came the clouds. As he thinks of his lovely wife, Rachel, he probably was looking into the eyes of his grandsons and saw uh, something within them that reminded them of her. And so the ceremony begins, this emotional ceremony, where Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, where Jacob asked Joseph a question of them, who are these. It's similar when you're in a wedding ceremony and the father walks the bride down the aisle and the, the minister stops the ceremony and says, who gives this man to marry this woman? Now, is he asking the question because he doesn't know who's involved in the situation? <laughs> no. And ceremonially, the, the father of the bride replies, her mother and I do. And in like fashion, Joseph says, these are my sons whom God has given me here. Now in order to truly appreciate this moment, you must realize that Joseph is choosing to fully identify with God's people over Egyptian society. In doing this, he is shutting off the boys from prominence that would come by being high-positioned, high-ranked people in the Egyptian society. Remember, these shepherding types were despised by the Egyptians. And so for Joseph to do this, to make this decisive uh, choice, whatever he's doing, he's choosing God's promises for his sons over whatever constitutes success and upward mobility in this culture. In Ephraim and Manasseh's eyes, dad is essentially drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, as for our family, first and foremost we identify with God. 
Now, I hope as you think about your own children and, and the way that you are shepherding them and steering their lives, that, that they would look at your decisions and say, mom and dad are drawing a line in the sand for the priorities of God. What does that look like? Well, first I would suggest to you that it, it's spoken, it's communicated. Tell them that their walk with Jesus matters most to you. I look at my own children from time to time and I say, Daddy wants you to do well in life. But the thing that will bring Daddy the most joy in life is that, that you would walk with Jesus. That you would follow Him that you would cultivate a relationship with him, that it would be real and genuine. And you have to follow that up then with what? Actions. You have to show them that Jesus matters most by modeling the right priorities before them. Do you remember what we saw last week? We saw that obedience to God and other values are not in opposition to one another, right? Right? What we noted was, it's a matter of what is first. Jesus must have first place in all things. That's what the Bible is showing us. Do your children know that? Do they see that? Do they believe that as they see you setting their priorities for how their time will be used and as they see you setting your own priorities for how your time will be used? Joseph one of the most affluent, well-off, prosperous, ambitious, successful men in the world at this time had a clear demarcation in the sand that said, God comes first. As the adoption ceremony continues, Jacob does something that would be considered culturally shocking. We pick up at verses 12 through 14. Then Joseph removed them from his knee, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them, both Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. In this ancient culture, the right hand was the hand of power. And so by laying his right hand on a son, Jacob would essentially be transferring or mediating that power of a blessing. This is shocking what's happening right here. We might not fully appreciate it because we don't engage in ceremonies like this, but just imagine, uh, ladies, that it's your wedding day and you have your big, white, beautiful gown and uh, all of your bridesmaids show up in white to show you up for your wedding, right? Now, that would be a big deal. Um, and those bridesmaids might be in the same level of danger that Jacob is in right now as he breaks cultural convention. You're asking the question, why would he do something like this, something so disruptive to the norm? 
Is it because he can't see? It says in verse 10 that his eyes are dim and he can't really see well. And, and Joseph kind of thinks that that's the case. When you look at verses 17 and 18, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. And he sensed the frustration here. You have to understand that this would have been appalling to Joseph in this moment. This isn't just a, a, a quick little faux pas on the part of the father. Joseph has spent much of his life cultivating certain responsibilities and characteristics in his firstborn son because he knew that this would be the son that would stand up and, and take prominence in the family. And like that, Jacob's just going to disregard all that planning and preparation and, and throw it out the window to make some kind of rash decision as he back to his old schemes again? Well, Jacob calms Joseph down with a firm response, verse 19. I know my son, he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. What is happening? You see that in Jacob's words that Jacob is not the one choosing to cross the hands God is. What is God communicating here? I think it's this. He's telling us something about how his grace works. God's grace is available to everyone. Can you imagine living in a world where grace is only available to the firstborn son of a family? Can you imagine what that would communicate to every other child living within that family? They have some special status due to fate or whatever it is that they were born into that position and I will never have access to that. But God's grace transcends that. It will not be handcuffed by things that handcuff us, such as position or privilege, or family background, or expectations from others, or traditions that we have established, or conventions, or just by what is commonly regarded as the right way to do things. His grace is superior to that. Kent Hughes shares this, God's grace is sovereign. It cannot be tamed. The economy of grace operates on its own principle humbling human wisdom and exalting the unlikely so that the last are often the first and the first last. I hope, friend, I hope that for you this is a freeing reality. It is a spot that you can fix your eyes on as life is spinning around. Have you ever just went through that exercise in your mind and thought through those five or ten people you quickly come up with them where you say, boy, uh, if I was put up next to them, I just wouldn't match. I wouldn't add up. I'm not as good as they are. I'm not as beautiful as they are. I'm not as lovely as they are. I can do that right now, easily. But God's grace breaks through those thoughts. 
Because he says, it's not by those standards that I make my decision to love you. In fact, as you look at the, the book of Genesis, it's always the wrong person that God's choosing in the book of Genesis. He chooses Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. Again, because God's grace will not be held captive. It will not be a respecter of persons. It will be for both the rich and the poor, for the older brother and the younger brother, for the mother who wishes she could have a child but can't have a child, as it is for the mother who can have children, for those from different ethnic backgrounds, different family origins. God's grace breaks through any barrier that we construct, any kind of limit that we seek to put upon it which means it's great news for us because it means that God's grace is made available to you. How do I access that? How do I get God's grace? Well, the answer in Genesis repeatedly is by faith. By faith, Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans. By faith, Jacob crossed over his arms and blessed the wrong son. Now let's... Let's spot another aspect of a grace in this story. We move on and we see this, that God's grace provides us with the leadership we need, not the leadership we deserve. After blessing the two boys, Jacob picks up with blessing the remainder of the sons. Uh, verse 1 tells us that these are prophetic in nature. He says, what shall happen to you in the days to come? And as you look at these blessings, you see two things. One, he, he identifies something characteristic about the son, their character, who they are as a person. And then he talks about what will happen in the future to them. And so we see this principle from that, that the actions of a person, of a believer, determine their future blessing in God's program. He begins with the three oldest sons, and they are disqualified from leadership. Why? Well, first we see that Reuben is disqualified because he was reckless. Look at verses 3 and 4, chapter 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Do you think Jacob's still a little mad about that one, huh? A little bit. But more than just being reactionary or vengeful in this moment, the Hebrew word translated unstable means insolent, reckless, destructive. Reuben's character, uh, you can picture it like a flood that rises up out of the river and, and starts going into houses and things like that. It is a destructive force. And did you notice what he said of Reuben? He said, you have all the potential. You're my might, the first fruit of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. So here you have an individual that is highly talented, highly capable, but lacked what leadership needs most, character. 
Natural ability and talent are worthless if there is no character behind it. And so he's disqualified. Simeon and Levi are disqualified for their cruelty. Look at verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Will my glory be not joined to their company? For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Simeon and Levi now in the text are called brothers, but not because of some biological relationship, but because they're two of the same kind. They're cut from the same cloth. They're violent. We saw this in Genesis 34. These two brothers walk into a village as an act of retribution for their sister Dinah, and they slaughter all of the men. And you think to yourself, well, are they paying back? Were they seeking out justice? Wasn't there a righteous quality to their anger? The answer is no. Why? Because righteous anger is never cruel. It's never excessive. It it never boils over the top. Uh, Jacob distances himself from this type of cruelty. He says, let my soul not come into their counsel, O my glory. Be not joined to their company. He's essentially saying avoid these types of people. Why? Because uncontrolled anger tends to bleed over into all kinds of other relationships. And it's always destructive. It's destructive to people personally and to property. Think about the families that these men ruined. Think about the excessive rage that they did. They, they hamstrung, it says, oxen, which is an act of senseless waste. You're just venting your rage. You're just breaking things. And it was selfish in nature. They weren't concerned about anyone else's feelings. They only cared about venting their own rage. Hear this about anger. Hear this about anger. Most anger stems from selfishness. Did you hear that? Most anger stems from selfishness. I didn't get my way Can you believe what they did to who? Me. And then it's full on rampage from there. So Jacob disavows this leadership. Reckless, cruel. In some ways, you have to think about it like this. This is the leadership that we deserve. Here's a principle about those who lead us, and it's this. The leaders of a culture tend to reflect the character or the quality of that culture. So if you're ever looking at the political class and saying to yourself, well, I don't like any of the political class that we have in right now. Have you ever found yourself saying that? I have. Well, the Bible says that that's like looking into a mirror in a sense. That they reflect the character and quality of the culture. But here's the thing that we see God in his grace doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we need. 
As we move forward to the fourth son, Judah, the son that we noted was the dark horse, we might expect the same type of criticism. Remember a little bit about Judah's story. He sold his brother into slavery, and then Genesis chapter 38, he engages in all kinds of immorality. But then as we move into the blessing, he doesn't secure his father's criticism. He secures his father's praise. Verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now why is this? Why is he distinguished differently than these other ones? Well, If you look again at the story of Genesis, like we saw a couple of weeks ago, Judah was on a wrong path, right? And then what did he do? He repented. Repentance is this idea that I see, I recognize, I understand that what I'm doing is wrong, and I make a decisive choice to change course. And so he, instead of aligning himself to his own selfish desires, Judah aligned himself to the purposes of God. From there, his character transforms. He offers himself as collateral for Benjamin to Jacob. He goes down to Egypt. He offers himself up in a sacrificial way to serve in Benjamin's place when he saw that his brother was going to be taken captive. Here's what we see about Judah and leadership. Judah is qualified for leadership because he lowered himself and sought to serve others. That is distinctly the biblical qualification for leadership. You cannot be a leader, according to the Bible, if you must be first. The Bible always says what? The first must be last. So in this way, he soars above the brothers, and he becomes a forefather to the Messiah. Look at the remainder of the prophecy, verses 9 through 11. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now quickly, if you're not familiar with this prophetic text and maybe some of the history of the Bible, some 640 years down the road, there would be a king, King David, who would become the first king out of Jerusalem. There was one king before him, Saul. David would, in his lineage, would hold the kingship in Jerusalem from the tribe of Judah all the way through. We see then in Matthew 1-2, it tells us that Jesus was born and Matthew gives us his family history. Why does he do that? Well, one of the things that Matthew wants us to understand in that family history is that Jesus came from who? Judah. And after Jesus, there would be no more kings. So even now in the book of Genesis, Jacob is looking down that distant horizon and he's seeing the coming Messiah. In Revelation 5.5, Jesus is called the Lion of who? Judah. Judah. The Lion of Judah. 
He's the leader we don't deserve, but the leader that we desperately need. In this text, by grace, God chooses to reject the reckless leadership of Reuben, the cruel leadership of Simeon and Levi, so that we would have the way paved for a Messiah who would come to us who is lowly, who is willing to lay down his life for us. Friends, I hope you understand that as you're looking at the Bible, the spotlight from start to finish is always on the person of Jesus. If you read the Bible and it just turns into a bunch of moral maxims that you look at and say, oh, this is how I need to live my life, and if I just do this, I can do a little bit more, a little bit better, and you don't see Jesus, you're missing the entire point of the Bible. All of the Bible focuses on him. Why? Because Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. If you try to be made right with God in some other way, whether it's your good works, or you just think, I'll just get by and God will be okay with me when I see him in the end, the Bible says no. The only way we have a right relationship with God is to choose the kind leadership and rule of Jesus in our life. That's what we see here in the text as we move forward. Can I ask you, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you ever made that decisive choice in your life to say, I need to stop trying to manage my own life? God, I need your leadership. I need your rule over my life. Let's look at one more spot of grace. One more and then we'll close. This one will be a lot quicker. God's grace promises that blessing will be the final outcome. In Genesis, blessing is a major theme, the word blessing. It begins with blessing, it ends with blessing. The word through the book occurs over 88 times. And it's telling us a big message that our greatest need in this life is to have God's blessing in our world. What does that blessing mean? When you get into the New Testament of the Bible, the book of Matthew, Jesus begins one of his most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, with a set called the Beatitudes. And in that, he begins each of them with, Blessed are, and in some kind of identify the peacemaker, those who are pure in spirit. On and on he goes. That word, blessed, means to be in a right relationship with God. That's all it means. When we're in a right relationship with God, everything about our world is rightly ordered. And so that's the key to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, the right relationship with God is lost. Everything moving forward, how do we restore that right relationship with God? And it moves to the person of Jesus where we see that's how the right relationship with God is restored. In this remaining chapter, Jacob pronounces blessings upon his sons. In Genesis 29, Moses explains, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to them. Now, we're going to skip most of those and just look closely at Joseph, whom Jacob pronounces the most lavish blessing upon. Look at verses 22 through 27. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow from a spring. 
His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, whom will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. So Joseph's life paints a picture for us. Even though you have suffered greatly, even though you have endured much harm, you have to understand that the overall desire and ethos, God's plan and purpose for you, is that of blessing. Now, how is that blessing found? Well, first we see in this prophecy that the blessing is found by God's presence. Do you see the names of God here? He is the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your fathers, the Almighty. Each one of these names captures a different aspect, a different aspect of the blessing of God's presence, whether in your life that represents protection or care or strength or stability or faithfulness. What could be better, friend, than having God in your life. The creator of the universe, whom Paul would later say, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? What's better than that? We can also see that God's blessings are abundant. They're never in short supply. You have to understand that this prophetic pronouncement is like a, the, the climax of a fireworks display. Jacob pronounces the word blessing over his son six different times. Blessing, blessing, blessing. It is as if blessing covers every detail of his future. That's God's plan. That's God's priority for him. Now I know that this is an important message. Why? Because I know you. I know the people in this room. As your pastor, I know that over 50% of this room is experiencing some kind of difficulty right now as I speak. Right now. Some of you are dealing with job-related issues. Some of you are dealing with broken relationships and they're so broken you don't even know how to pick up the pieces again. Some of you are dealing with emotional pain that you have carried for many, many years. Others, physical limitations, chronic pain, chronic illness. And unfortunately, there's some of you in this room who are dealing with multiple of those factors at the same time. But all of those difficulties, they're disorienting. They make your, your world feel like it's spinning out of control. And, and you, you ask yourself the question, how do I remain stable when so much of my life is unstable? Here's the spot that you have to look at. Here's what you have to see. 
you must believe that ultimately God's gracious plan for your life is one of blessing. It's not for your harm. It's not for your destruction. It's for your blessing. How are we blessed? Well, I would say two ways. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are presently blessed despite the pain because you have a relationship with Jesus. The God of the universe became a baby, lived the life you couldn't live, died on the cross for your sins, rose again for new life so that you could be made in right relationship with him. But it doesn't just end with the here and now. That blessing that God has intended for your life is eternal in nature. It extends on into the millennium, on into the millions of years, on into the billions of years. That's God's intention to bless you. Can you see it? Can you spot the grace? Do you see that God wants to show you His grace because He makes it available to everyone. His grace isn't available to some and not to others. His grace is available for everyone in this room. You also see it in the fact that God wants to provide you with the leadership that you need and He did this by sending His Son Jesus. You also see it in His great desire to bless you. From the first pages of the Bible to the last pages of the Bible, God's intention is blessing from start to finish. Friends, do you see his grace? And if you see it, are you holding on to it? Are you letting that stabilize your life? Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Lord, uh, we do thank you and praise you for your goodness and your kindness to us in Jesus. Apart from Jesus, Lord, we have nothing. But in Jesus, we have everything. And so I just pray this morning for the one who maybe feels disoriented, dizzy, destabilized. I pray, God, that in the midst of that chaos, that they would see that you are a God that they can reach out to, a God that they can know, a God who forgives every sin that we've ever committed if we place our faith and trust in Jesus. The Bible says, for it is with your mouth uh, that you confess Jesus, with your heart that you believe that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. We cling to that promise this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are the God of grace. In your name we pray. Amen.